finished. Good day, everybody. This is Davo and Rahul, and you are listening to Medical Conversations. Welcome Med Conversations. Med Conversations, yes. Yeah. The, so today we're going to be talking about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which may seem like an overly specific thing to be teaching you about, but suck it. It's a good example. Good example, yeah, yeah, yeah. A, I've um, actually seen it as well. Yeah? Without you. having done cardiology, so that's impressive. it's a real disease, it can does, confirm. does exist. Um <laughs> So today we're going to use a case of Johnny Q, a 20-year-old ceramic hydrotechnician who went to his GP with symptoms of exertional dyspnea, who's an otherwise well guy. So as an introduction to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, Davor, what can you tell me about it off the top of your head, off the top of your dome? So it's genetic. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the most common cause of sudden death in the young. That's mm. uh, how I tend to see it in questions. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's relatively rare. Yeah, well, actually, the prevalence is so apparently one in 500 adults. I think there's a lot of okay. asymptomatic people out there. So it's more than I'd expect. Yeah, for me as well. I was like, that's a lot more people than I thought. And it's polygenetic with all these... So it's, there's a whole bunch of different genes that cause it, and there's a whole bunch of different manifestations. So it's very heterogeneous. How um, disappointing when they figured out that, in terms of genetics, it's never one gene that corresponds to yeah, one disease. That would have and then not only is it polygenetic, I'm sure there's environmental factors yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, Watson and Crick were just so unhappy. I thought they <laughs> cracked it. Um, and it's so the overall Hockham or HCM thing is characterized by diastolic dysfunction, so it doesn't relax properly, and that's due to hypertrophy, fibrosis of the myocardium, and an intraventricular gradient. That means a pressure gradient inside the ventricle, which we'll talk about more later. So, uh, just to define again, so basically if on echo, if you have a thickened and non-dilated left ventricle in the absence of another condition, and that's important because there are other conditions that can cause thickened, non-dilated left ventricle, like or what, double. So, the big one that they always compare with Hockham is athlete's heart, mm-hmm. because athletes have hypertrophied good hearts, Farlap's heart, um, aortic stenosis as well, because it's pushing against that afterload. Hypertension as well, again, pushing against afterload gives you Mm. a big heart. So chronic pressure-loaded ventricles become Mm. big and strong as well. Not strong. That's bad for you. Don't ever think it's good for you. Anyway, um, (laughs) so, yeah, prevalence of 0.2% in the population, and most people don't know that they have it. Um, And only 33% have the non-obstructive form, which is that they have no intraventricular gradient. Again, we'll talk about that later. It's equal between men and women. So differentials, Davil? So the, the things start that with the inherited metabolic diseases. That's where <laughs> okay. I start. <laughs> well, let's start with athlete's heart because that's the big one that I've always been taught. Mm-hmm. And the other ones that you need to rule out on that echo diagnosis, so aortic stenosis or hypertensive cardiomyopathy. And what are these inherited metabolic diseases that you're so familiar with? So uh, a couple of them are infiltrative disease, like Fabry's disease, which you'll learn about in the USMLE. That's the um, alpha-galactosidase deficiency, I think. Anyway, um, it's LAMP2 and PRCAG2. Um, So anyway, these just diseases that screw up your myocardium by depositing stuff that's not meant to be there. Very specific stuff. Yeah. yeah, Don't worry about too much. Um, And infiltrative disease and restrictive cardiomyopathy. The thing is, it's very hard to tell the difference on echo between like... Uh, hyper, uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and like a restrictive cardiomyopathy due to something like amyloid deposition. Mm. So MRI is sort of the new thing, but we'll talk about that now. Um, so part two of the case. Uh, so his GP hits him with a bit of salbutamol and some chest x-rays. Eventually he's like, hey, let's get an echocardiogram on this guy. Um, Doesn't do an ECG at any point. No, that's <laughs> <necessary>. <laughs> The echo shows asymmetrical septal hypertrophy. Remember that. Uh, asymmetrical septal hypertrophy. And Johnny Q's GP is quick to bust out a love letter to the local heart master. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So genetics-wise, we won't go into this too much, but it's a autosomal dominant thing for most genes, um, and it's a defect in the genes that code for the thick and thin contractile myofilaments. A little mouthful for you. Um, and there's a lot of genetic testing available these days, but because it's so polygenetic and we're not sure about some of the significance of some of these, uh, it can feel kind of futile, I guess, to a patient. Um, and I guess you'd offer it to people with who have a family member who has uh, Hockham, and if they had like one of the surefire genes, you could both look at risk, but... Yeah. This sounds like one of those times that you'd send them to a genetic counsellor before you fire off that test. Yeah, yeah. Maybe just don't shoot that one <laughs> off straight away. Uh, so what would you do, Darwin, in your first step in diagnosing Hockham? Unlike this guy's GP, I'd probably do an ECG. <laughs> yeah, well, you're wrong. Right? So <laughs> probably not a bad idea. But just, just to talk about the morphology on imaging, traditionally we always use 2D echo for the diagnosis, but now cardiac MRI is coming out, and there's something called late gadolinium enhancement, and might have heard of gadolinium as it's a heavy metal that's used in um, in MRI. Multiple sclerosis. Yeah, yeah. And so in the heart, it, if it sort of late enhances, that is, once all the rest of the gadolinium's washed out, but there's still a bit that's still highlighted by the gadolinium, means there's a bit of st- scarring there, right. which is helpful. We'll talk about that later as well. Um, and then there's, the thing is, as like I was saying before, there's diverse patterns of hypertrophy. So some people, there's an apical form where they get uh, in the apex of the heart, down at the very sort of pointy end, they get uh, hypertrophy there, and it's like a Japanese common form. And then there's ones, it, basically anywhere, you can get like a little bit of bulging. Um, mm. And then in terms of like the actual histopathology, the myocytes, and this is key, are all chaotic and disorganized. Instead right. of being like smoothly laid out in nice layers, they're all over the place and they're chaotic. And so. So that's something you need to get a biopsy for? Well, I guess to actually appreciate that you would, but you wouldn't diagnose it using a biopsy. That's not commonly done. No, yeah. right. you use it, you're more using the morphology we were talking about, so asymmetrical hypertrophy yeah. um, or eccentric hypertrophy. Um, and there's a high prevalence of myocardial bridging, so that basically means you get coronary arteries going through the muscle instead of like running over the top. Mm. Um, and so every time you can imagine during systole, the heart squeezes those coronary arteries shut there's a little bit of ischemia there, and then it opens back up again. That, over time, develops fibrosis. And whenever you get that disorganized myocytes that we're talking about, plus fibrosis, that's super arrhythmogenic because you've got little dead parts that, that it's not conducting nicely through. Right. It's very mm. nice to explain, Rahul. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. Um, so pathophys-wise, there's sort of a couple of main ways that this causes disease. The main one that everyone thinks about is left ventricular outflow tract obstruction, which basically means that as that bit of bulging muscle gets bigger and bigger and bigger, it blocks the part where all the blood flows out of the left ventricle into the aorta. Mm. Um, There's actually a weak relationship between the sudden death from arrhythmia part and the amount of obstruction you have. So it's not really predictive of that, but it is predictive of your heart failure eventually. Mm. So sudden death, I'm guessing, is more arrhythmogenic causes. Yeah, that's right. It's usually a VTVF thing. Right. Yeah. Um, and so this is where that idea of the intraventricular gradient comes about. What do you think the intraventricular gradient means? Darling? Well, if you have an obstruction, then you're going to have a higher pressure behind the obstruction than afterwards. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And since it's subaortic or inside the ventricle, you get intraventricular gradient, as opposed to aortic stenosis, which is the aortic gradient that everyone mm. talks about. Um, and so the way to decrease your intraventricular gradient is to decrease your contractility, so you're not pressing so hard against it from the other side or increase your ventricular volume, so you sort of equalize those two sides of pressure, or increase the arterial pressure as well. Um, and then the converse is true. It's all a bit tricky, but basically that un- that outlines why the Valsalva maneuver um, makes, the, uh, makes the murmur louder. Mm. Um, 
so and there's a whole bunch of other things you do like hand grips and squatting and stuff to alter your um, arterial and venous dynamics but we won't go too much into that um, the other the key thing in Hockham is systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve otherwise known as SAM have you heard of that double? haven't Oh, really? It's a cool acronym, though. I've never heard of it. Okay, all right. Like cool. I've heard of I thought you touched the that. word anterior and, and mitral valves. <laughs> Systolic? <laughs> so that's a new one. You might have to start. <laughs> so basically, these people sort of have, like, tend to have long, floppy mitral valve leaflets, right? Mm. Uh, and they bend because of this pressure effect during systole, and they sort of bend the wrong way. So in systole, normally your mitral valve is meant to be closed, mm. preventing all your blood flowing up into your left atrium and into your pulmonary veins. But instead, this kind of bends because of that high pressure that's going past the other side of the um, of the mitral valve leaflet and blocks off or opens up, sorry, the um, the mitral valve. So you get mitral regurgitation, and it can actually contribute to the um, outflow obstruction as well. So they're bending into the atrium. Bending into the out, outflow tract. Into the ventricle. Yeah, yeah, right. sorry, into the ventricle, yeah. So probably best look at a diagram of that because it's a bit hard to explain, but SAM, systolic anterior motion of mitral valve, it's critical when you're talking about this. The other thing is diastolic dysfunction. So they've got this big, heavy ventricle that doesn't relax properly and eventually it can't fill up properly. Mm. Um, and it's worsened by all that hypertrophy, fibrosis, and disorganized structure we were talking about before. And so more and more they become reliant on that little bit of atrial kick at the end, which normally people doesn't really fill up their ventricle much. But in these people, they need that extra punch just to get it in there. Mm. So I um, imagine AF is disastrous in these people. Can be, yeah. It can really trigger them to go into heart failure. Mm. You can do sometimes need to be fairly aggressive about treating it. Um, and then microvascular dysfunction. So again, we're talking about um, the myocardial bridging where the coronaries run through the myocardium, but also you get more muscle to supply and all those little vessels are not meeting the um, appropriate demand for this big heart muscle. So your coronary reserve or the amount of reserve blood flow that your heart has goes down. And so little little um, insults or exercise can give you chest pain. So atherosclerosis is also bad news. Yeah, but interestingly, and this is a side note, myocardial bridging, areas of coronary arteries that go through myocardial bridging have less atherosclerosis. All oh, right. Not 100% clear why that is, but um, yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. Um, so we go back to Johnny Q, our man, <laughs> and he visits the heart whisperer. Okay, cool. Dr. Halls. <laughs> he quizzes him about his family history and says Johnny better not return until he has a full family tree with every single one of his relatives' lives detailed back at least seven generations. Fantastic bedside manner. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> better not return. <laughs> Curious about what the, uh, the consequences of that are. Um, Johnny Q also feels more comfortable in the calming presence of this heart lord. He describes <laughs> some exertional dyspnea, occasional palpitations, and some rare minor chest pain. Is this how I'm going to have to start addressing you? Yeah. <laughs> no, God, I hope I get into cardiology. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on his expert examination, what? Well, we can talk about this later. But Johnny has an ejection systolic murmur at the lower left sternal edge, aka the tricuspid area, mm-hmm. that doesn't radiate to the carotids. And the cardiologist thinks he also might hear a faint fourth heart sound. I'm not sure about that one. Right. So symptoms history-wise, what sort of symptoms do you think people would present with or what sort of history would they give you if they were a Hockamy person? Sudden death, they might say. Yeah. Look, I've had a bad doubt of sudden death lately, Doc. I don't think you'd help me out with that. Um, Chest pain, as we talked about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, also shortness of breath might be a predominant thing because of that heart failure. Mm-hmm. Symptoms from that... Uh, 
left ventricular outflow obstruction. And diastolic dysfunction as well. And then all that fibrosis and the arrhythmogenic heart they get from that, so they might get palpitations, Mm. atrial fibrillation, or ventricular arrhythmias. Yeah, yeah. And not sudden death, but they might say regular presyncope or syncope. Yeah, yeah. And that can be either to the arrhythmia stuff or because they got so much obstruction that they're getting syncope. So, yeah, yeah. it's probably a bad sign of getting syncope. It's pretty bad. So, examination-wise, what's the classic murmur, though? Well, classic murmur. So, ejection systolic murmur at the lower left sternal border, as we heard in Johnny Q. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, due to outflow tract turbulence and mitral regurgitation. Yeah, so the mitral regurg side of it might give you more of like a... Um, a pan-systolic. Yeah, pan-systolic. Um, and that's because of that systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve. But the ejection systolic murmur at the lower left sternal border, the tricuspid area, is due to outflow tract obstruction. So the other thing that causes an ejection systolic murmur is, of course, aortic stenosis, and that's far more common. Mm. <laughs> but there's some really important manoeuvres you can do mm. uh, to differentiate between the two. So the biggest one is valve salva. That's exam fodder right there, remember that. Valve salva increases your Hockham murmur. Mm. And Valsalva decreases your preload. So generally in most people, less preload, less blood flowing through the heart, less murmur, because there's less blood going through the valve. The tight valve. Yeah, yeah exactly. But in Valsalva, it actually pushes those ventricular walls closer together, yeah, yeah. Um, increasing the outflow tract t- turbulence and therefore increasing the murmur. So that's like the really key examination finding you fail your OSCE or your clinical exam. exam. You'll fail in general (laughs) if you do not know that. (laughs) Incidentally, how do you get people to do the Valsalva? I just get them to push against my... I get them to block their nose and then push against my hand, which is maybe like four centimetres in front of their stomach. A a really good one I saw when I was um, uh, bulldogging for some physicians. Not having... uh, Sorry, I won't make that joke. Um, they get a syringe, like just a normal 10 mil syringe, and pull out the plunger and then just get them to um, blow through the narrow hole. Mm. And that works really well. Yep. Um, and then the other thing, I only recently realized this, but people always said aortic stenosis versus aortic sclerosis. I didn't realize how they were telling the difference between those things on uh, examination, but it's the radiation to the carotids. Did you know that, Davo? You could ask me. Yeah, I should, I should just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Literally years. Um... <laughs> And then they can get a fourth heart sound, which is that, like, what is it? Tennessee, Tennessee, Tennessee. So that, like, after. I don't believe in <laughs> any more than two sound. heart sounds. <laughs> uh, and that's due to a stiff ventricle. So everything's hitting the uh, hitting so. hard ventricle as we go mm. through. Um, and then a bifid systolic impulse at the carotid. Don't worry too much about that. Hypovolemia, if they're, like, overloaded because they're already in heart failure, you probably missed the boat on that one. Um, yeah, so. What are the other maneuvers we can do besides Valsalva? Well, we get into the other manoeuvres. So if you stand after squatting as well, I think that you basically you drop all of your venous blood into your legs and so you get decrease your ventricular volume. Um, and then the other way is to go, you can decrease the murmur by increasing your ventricular volume, which is the converse of what we're saying. Yeah. Yeah, increasing your peripheral resistance. And I actually find the squatting one really, uh, sorry, the hand grip one are really easy to do. Because really? I've never actually successfully done it. Really? Like, I've, I've yeah. tried to. I've emulated. I've done the, the done cardiology the... exam dance. You see? <laughs> the ritual. <laughs> I certainly haven't heard anything. Uh, yeah, I, I tried it once and it worked, and I was like, mm, nice. Because it's easy for a patient to grab your hand. But these old ladies were, like, breathless and stuff, telling them to do a Valsalva. Mm. They're not on board with that at all. So, mm. Yeah. Um, so the cardiologist begins enchanting the ancient ECG ritual <laughs> and then realizes there's sinus rhythm with some precordial Q waves and bifid P waves. 
Uh, on reviewing the echocardiogram images themselves, he sees reasonable left atrial enlargement, some systolic anterior motion of the anterior mitral valve, which stands, which, what's the acronym for that, Darwin? SAM. SAM, yeah, old mate, SAM. And increased ejection fraction, in addition to the previous septal hypertrophy, which measures 3.4 centimetres. Massive. Is that a lot? That's big, yeah. I'm impressed. Talk about that. Yeah, you should what, are, what are bifid P waves? What's the other name for that? P mitrale. Mm. So mm. that's that uh, left atrial enlargement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a good one to watch out for. It's pretty impressive if you're analyzing the atrium on an ECG at medical student level. Mm. Um, so ECGs, like Darvall suggested, is a terrible investigation. <laughs> no, it never should always be done. But there's a wide range of abnormalities on there. So they get one of the things they get the big left ventricular hypertrophy, but not always. Um, the electrical left ventricular hypertrophy with deep and narrow Q waves. Um, I think classically in the lateral leads, um, but. Anyway, that doesn't matter. So if you see that, it's probably, if you see LVH with QAs, it's probably just a repolarization abnormality as opposed to a missed infarction. Um, so yeah. And left atrial enlargement, which is that P mitrali or M-shaped, McDonald's-shaped uh, mm. P waves. And just for a bit of revision, if you've got a right atrium that's enlarged, what do you see? P pulmonale, which I remember P pulmonale peaked, you know, peaked It's P just waves. a bigger P wave. Yeah, yeah. it's like. It's like sharp. Yeah. Um, and then deep T-wave inversions in the lateral precordial leads in the apical variant. <laughs> Look, if you said that to someone as a medical student... I'll slap you. Yeah. you to go drink some alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> You're too smart. There's a hierarchy here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and then on echo, which is the, you know awesome to look at, so um, <laughs> show that they see left ventricular hypertrophy with uh, possible septal dominance, which is that asymmetrical part of it. Um, and then you can measure the gradients on there using some crazy technology that some dude once worked out about looking at blood flows and all that. But anyway, more than 30 millimeters is like a pretty big intraventricular gradient, and you might see the mitral valve you know, slipping over to the outflow tract, causing mm. MR and worsening obstruction. Cardiac MRI is the balm for this. Um, it shows you the morphology. I think you can see fibrosis on some sequences that they do, and then late gadolinium enhancement is obviously a marker of fibrosis and a prognostic marker for these guys. It's a risk. We'll talk about that later anyway. Cardiac cath, direct catheterization. You can measure the pressure mm. inside the ventricle. Yeah. How much do you get paid for doing a cardiac cath in someone with Hockham? Is that a first-line investigation? Yeah, well, it Depends is if, if you're you... in private or public. Exactly. It's a, it's a gold standard. It's not <laughs> even. <laughs> Cardiologist almost jumps out of his chair when he sees the degree of septal hypertrophy. 3.4 centimetres, he says. Jeez, I better consult the heart lords. <laughs> and also ponders about the possibility... Overlords. He is a heart lord. Oh, yeah, right, so. Heart overlords. <laughs> <laughs> ponders about the possibility of atrial arrhythmias in Johnny's case. So, Great thing to ponder. Mm, natural history-wise, uh, HCM, not Hockham, so what non-obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That is an important distinction. Yeah, we probably should have talked about that before. <laughs> so if it's not obstructive, you don't even have, have any left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. It's just HCM, which it's is... just pronounced... <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's compatible with a normal life expectancy. They live up to 70, 80, 90, you know, and 1% related mortality per year for people with HCM. Sorry to put you on the spot. This is not on the PowerPoint in front of us. Okay, yeah, that's what I like. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> How often do people with HCM develop Hockham? Or is it pretty much if you don't have Hockham at the, the start, you'll be fine? Uh, no, there is a conversion rate. I think it's about 30... This was on earlier. I think it's about 30% of people go on to develop um, or 60% of people go on to develop the obstructive form. So one third of patients have the non-obstructive form. 
But then if you have the non-obstructive form to yeah, start off with, you stay can out? you go to Hockham? I, I think so, yeah. Because presumably the, all these kids don't start off with an obstructive cardiomyopathy mm. when they're babies. So, yeah. Good old <laughs> speculating on an informative <laughs> yeah, yeah. Enjoy that. Uh, right into midconversations.com <laughs> yeah. and answer that yeah, one. Write to your politician if you're dissatisfied <laughs> yeah. with this podcast. Um, so heart failure develops in like 10 to 15% of people with like restrictive heart failure. That's NYHA 3 and 4. It's a diastolic. Mm. And that's uh, determined by left ventricular outflow tract obstruction and AF and the diastolic dysfunction. Just as a side note, uh, so you're aware, diastolic dysfunction, people aren't really sure about what drugs to treat it with. We give them pretty much all the same systolic dysfunction heart, heart failure drugs, but... There's not a lot of evidence about what works in these people, so mm. just FYI. Uh, the other thing in the natural history is that they can develop sudden cardiac death, which everyone gets so excited about. So the interesting thing about this is it sort of develops usually before 30 to 35 years, and if you make it past that point, you have a much lower chance of having sudden cardiac right. death. So whether the disease process kind of fizzles out after that or whether those people had less aggressive forms, I'm really clear, but it's good to know. So if you made it like 40, you're probably in the clear. Um, and so that can occur. People think of it as occurring when they're like re- exercising really hard because it's the athletes, you know, young athletes die of this, but it can occur at rest as well with modest, modest physical activity. And that's because you've got all that fibrosis and disorganization. They're mm-hmm. like, you know, the, um, the substrate for the arrhythmia is all there. It just needs to trigger off the bad luck, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so risk factor of sudden cardiac death, the obstruction, the degree, your intraventricular gradient is not actually a risk factor for your sudden cardiac death. But what is a risk factor for your sudden cardiac death, Darvall? Is the following. Is having a family history of sudden cardiac death, unexplained syncope, aberrant exercise response, um, a... Non-sustained Non-sustained VT, mm-hmm. and a massive left ventricular hypertrophy. So not necessarily obstructive, but if it's massive hypertrophy. Like this guy. He's got... Well, mm. yeah, he has a little bit of obstruction, but he's got big hypertrophy. Mm. Um, and in, in regards to the aberrant exercise response, people are probably puzzled about what that means. So it means that when you put them do a stress echo, they um, or even just a normal uh, exercise, they actually get become hypotensive instead of hypertensive, mm. i.e., yeah, for whatever reason, their heart isn't meeting the demands of the exercise. Mm. Um, so that's aberrant exercise response. So that's a classic MCQ question. So-and-so was playing rugby and then he suddenly died. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong? <laughs> that's the diagnosis. Yeah, yeah. And I think that would be one of the hardest things about having Hockham is you've got pretty big restrictions on your exercise. Yeah. And imagine like you're trying to like run around with your friends or whatever. It's like, well, mm. it could die. <laughs> <laughs> Do I want to play in the park? That frisbee too. I'm enjoying my life right now, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's hard. tough. That's so, really tough. and that's what brings us to our next thing is that we can talk about like when you put in a primary prevention ICD, I in ICD, um, when the person hasn't had any previous ventricular. Rhythm. What is ICD? Oh, oh sorry. Implantable cardiac cardioverter defibrillator. So it's basically a shock thing that sits mm. in the heart all the time, recognizes ventricular arrhythmias and shocks it straight away. Mm-hmm. Um, so the things that would lead you to put one in straight away without even caring about whether they've had it before would be someone who has a family, all those things, family history of sudden death, unexplained syncope, NSVT, sustained, non-sustained ventricular tachycardia, hypotensive um, response to exercise, massive hypertrophy, or actually looking on the cardiac MRI, if they have big late gadolinium enhancement, i.e. a big area of fibrosis, then you just go whack one in. There's a few other things that might push you towards doing it, but um, you know, generally those are the accepted ones. So, Johnny's commenced on metoprolol by his exceptionally capable Just to make sure that if he does try and exercise, he can't. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The metoprolol serves no purpose. <laughs> so make no mistake about that. Um, 
So he gradually increases the doses, and he also recommends that he gets an ICD implanted because he's got such a big... Why does, why does he need uh, ICD implanted, though? Because he has such a big heart, that huge... 3.4 centimetres, yeah. Mouth-watering septum. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And he orders a 24-hour halter monitor to see if he can spot any AF. So, um, yeah. Uh, so we, we talked about a bit about ICDs. Heart failure-wise, what you want to do is reduce that contractility, thereby reducing that intraventricular gradient. And so what are some great drugs to reduce contractility? So beta blockers do that. Mm-hmm. That's a classic. Um, and it also increases your diastole time by slowing down your heart yeah. rate, so more feeling there. Yeah. Verapamil as well. Which is a non-dihydropyridine mm-hmm. calcium channel blocker, so centrally acting. That's much the same thing. Disapyramide um, has been used, which is, I think is a vasodilator and is used in that context. That's the reason they use So that's it. not for contractility? I don't think so, no. That's just for symptomatic control, right? Uh, well, yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, that's what it says there, at least. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, so what it says up today. They're <laughs> yeah, yeah. not actually doctors. We <laughs> <laughs> just like medical things. stuff. Um, Double's a historian, uh, <laughs> microbiologist. He's kind of a doctor. Um, <laughs> So diuretics you can use judiciously in someone who is in hypervolemic heart failure. Mm-hmm. Remember, if you diurese them too much, then that you know they don't have enough preload. Intraventricular gradient becomes bigger. Bam, you're in trouble again. So use that judiciously. Um, so there's no evidence for using calcium channel blocker and a beta blocker. And you know one thing you should know is that you will almost never see any cardiologist or anyone put a beta blocker and a centrally acting calcium channel blocker like verapamil or mm. diltiazem on for any patient because mm. of the risk of huge hypotension and mm. bradycardia. But this is the one place where you might see it, and sometimes it does work. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, and end-stage systolic dysfunction, i.e. blown-out Hockham, when they've been doing this for so long that they actually lose their contracting um, mm. capability, then you start all the classic stuff like ACE inhibitors and spironolactone and diuretics and whatever else. So you go into autopilot. Yep, <laughs> follow the algorithm. Um, so then atrial fibrillation, so 25% of patients, and it's because they get this big left atrium that, you know, all it's, it's like a big pool of water that has little stones dropping it everywhere. You know? Lose that atrial kick. Lose your atrial kick. So anticoagulant therapy-wise, you pretty much just do it. The CHADS-VAS score isn't um, validated in these patients. You've got a very low threshold to doing it because they have a fairly high risk of uh, over their life of stroke thromboembolism. Right, okay. Yeah, so they pretty much all get anticoagulated mm. um, if they've got atrial fibrillation and Hockham. Uh, and amiodarone is the best in reducing the recurrence of AF, but beta blockers and calcium channel blockers can be used for a rate control strategy as well in people who have just persistent AF. Usually if their left atrium is that big, it can be so difficult to control their AF. Um, do they ever so do some... This is another off-the-PowerPoint question. <laughs> I was sweating. <laughs> hit me, hit me. Do they ever, ever use some of the interventional Yeah, so stuff? early days in the ablation stuff yeah. um, for these guys, and there is some evidence that it works. So, yeah, it's, it's something you can consider. Mm. Um, Probably not going to make that decision as a midterm. No, well, you can make suggestions. <laughs> you get strong suggestions. <laughs> Passively aggressive word of discern. What I would do. Yeah, based on the evidence that's available. I don't know if you like to do evidence. <laughs> but, um, and then once you get to so some of the man- crazy management stuff is really for the heart failure people and you get to like surgical myectomy and PTSMA so let's talk, talk about surgical myectomy first basically it means surgical removal of the muscle um, and they go in there and they just cut out that big glob of stuff um, and you do it for people who have real bad heart failure that's not responding to drugs or people who have just terrible LVOT obstructions at baseline so more than 50 millimeters of mercury and 85% of people get symptom relief for 25 years. That's pretty damn good, right? Problem is the periprocedural mortality is pretty high because you're going into their heart and cutting their heart out. Um, yeah. 
So there's a new thing, or fairly new thing, called percutaneous transluminal septal myocardial ablation. <laughs> it's an, uh, another thing you're cutting the surgeons out of. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, pretty sure we can do this for the wire. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And they do. So the thing about PTSMA, basically you take alcohol and you inject it one to three mils into the septal perforators of the heart, of the coronary arteries, right? So you block them off inject some alcohol in there and it just kills the septum or like a large part of the septum and resolves heart failure symptoms in heaps of people. There's never been a head-to-head trial of surgery versus ablation. And so generally what they say now is just keep it for older patients and poor surgical candidates. And the reason is that probably a lot of our data, that we, the limited data we do have, comes from less experienced centers. And so they're not as good at finding those septal perforators. And sometimes they just inject alcohol into the whole heart. <laughs> I think there was a case at Monash. I'm not sure. Some hospital was that. And um, they just injected way too much alcohol into the wrong thing and kill it. So, yeah, there is. And then you get this scar, obviously, afterwards because you're mm. just killing the heartbeat, leaving everything there. So there's a scar there and they come at risk of arrhythmia like heart block. or Because the septum is obviously where your whole AV slash, you know, bundle of hiss or that runs. That's where it is. That's where it is, <laughs> yeah. Um, so if you knock that all out, you can end up in a little you bit of trouble. need a pacemaker. Mm. So, one morning on his ward rounds, the cardiologist, who has remained nameless for this purposes of this case, <laughs> noticed a new name on the spiffy list handed to him by the charming young resident. Johnny Q. He probes the registrar to find out more. He reports that this Johnny Q kid was admitted after he received an ICD shock in the context of forceful exercise. Mm. Cardiologist pat- pats himself on the back and praises to the heart lord <laughs> gods for saving yet another life. And that is Hockham, my friends. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you, Rahul. That was excellent. No worries. Should do more podcasts, you know? Yeah. Should get into this.